Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. This week, we'll be talking with Professor Hugh Cagle about his new book, Assembling the Tropics, Science and Medicine in Portugal's Empire, 1450 to 1700, out this year from Cambridge University Press. Assembling the Tropics is a brilliant analysis of the production of this idea of the tropics through the course of Portuguese expansion. The global connections forged by seafaring empires demanded new ways of conceiving a unified world. As the Portuguese were the first to discover, however, the ancient canon provided little guidance and the far-flung colonies all seemed unique and defy coherent organization. Through efforts to control, interpret, and economize their outposts in Africa, Asia, and the Americas, the Portuguese developed many new methods of producing knowledge about an increasingly globalizing world. Eventually, through their efforts to consolidate their authority over the health of the empire, professional physicians invented the idea of the tropics, a space of prodigious nature and inescapable disease. In the century to come, this idea of the tropics would become an orienting notion of modern empires and race theory. So welcome to the show, Hugh. Thank you, Lance. It's great to be here. Um, I'd like to start a little bit about how this uh, project came about and the research that went into it and um, uh, developing this out of a dissertation. Yeah, well, so the project actually, I mean, this particular project actually has pretty um, pretty distant um, roots. It goes back to um, really an MA project that I would produced as a Latin American Studies student. Um, when I was working on um, basically what turned out to be a project on Jesuits and race thinking in colonial Brazil. Um, but over the course of that project, I was kind of I was kind of looking for a way to do um, to do uh, with. Um, well, basically to do the kinds of things that um, that Carlo Ginsburg did with Pinocchio uh, in his you know famous book, Cheese and the Worms, um, but with. Um, uh, enslaved people in colonial Brazil to see how they engaged institutions and um, and the sort of the broader system of race thinking that they helped perpetuate. And um, but I wanted to do it using um, topics um, like cosmology that we would now see as um, as really um, sort of falling under the broader category of science. And um, so, so I kind of conceived it as, as sort of an intellectual history, but of the enslaved. And um, and I was just sort of running through um, resource after resource, um, at least those that I could find as an MA student in Latin American studies. And I really couldn't find anything um, that offered any guidance. And so I went to the venerable the venerable Cambridge History of Latin America, which is this 10, 11, maybe 12 volume now sort of. Um, expansive resource where every new graduate student in Latin America at least, you know, has to, has to start. And everything on intellectual history that I could find was sort of like, 
sort of like, uh, you know, highbrow cultural life, arts and letters and that kind of thing. And so, uh, and so for the MA thesis, I ended up talking about how Jesuits basically spoke about race and then, and then called it good. And then went on to, went on to, um, get a PhD, you know, largely in Latin American history. That was at least the field that I, um, that I took my, my comprehensive exams in. Um, and then wrote a dissertation that turned out to be a lot about the history of science. And there is sort of a, a longer story here as well about how, why the dissertation um, turned out to move more forcefully into the history of science and away from histories of religion and race thinking that had preoccupied me as an MA student. And I think I've actually actually thought about this quite a bit as I was as I was making the transformation because I I took a comprehensive exam in Latin American history. Um, and had read virtually nothing in the history of science um, before before really starting on this on this on this project, but you know I was having to think think strategically about about a, a PhD dissertation and trying to find a project that I was really interested in to sort of commit to for the for the you know for what was the foreseeable future, and I became as I was thinking about what else I might have to say about um, the Jesuits um, as an organization of people, but also an organization of intellects. Um, you know, so much of of even the histories of colonial science these days are really framed by the story of the Atlantic. And one of the things that was really important to me, working on Portugal's empire especially, was to find a way to tell a story that gets us beyond the Atlantic. Because, of course, the Atlantic has sort of come to be something of a hegemonic concept itself. And I think that's probably problematic in at least two ways. Um, on the one hand, um, at least the people whose perspectives I began increasingly to read um, as, uh, as a writer, as an historian, weren't conceiving of the, of the Atlantic um, in, any, in any sort of uh, necessarily meaningful way. But they were sort of trying to take in the full sweep of an empire that they were that they were trying to sort of create, expand, and ultimately govern. And so I felt like the Atlantic framework uh, also wasn't really constant with the perspectives of people in the past. Sorry, my phone just rang. But I felt like the Atlantic framework really wasn't constant with the perspectives of the people that I was that I was trying to understand, the, the actors' categories that I would sort of come to learn as um, a, a term of currency in the history of science. But also, you know, the Atlantic, to my mind, um, increasingly seemed to cleave somewhat arbitrarily what were, of course, global networks that, you know, linked, threaded together the Atlantic, but also threaded together much of the early modern world. And so, you know, so, for instance, you know, the, the transformation uh, that, you know, pepper and cinnamon go through as they are translated into slave labor and then translated into sugar um uh, that arrives then on the European markets, um, or the ways in which silver from Potosí or Zacatecas is translated into uh, into into Mughal power um, in northern India and, and parts of, of Central Asia. I mean, the Atlantic framework allows you to glimpse a part of these processes, but if you're trying to trying to understand the process, it seems to me kind of arbitrarily. Uh, a bit arbitrary to just decide that you were only going to focus on the Atlantic. And I felt like Portugal's empire especially demanded that I, I take seriously the, the extra Atlantic aspects of the, uh, of the global world. Um, so those are sort of some of the reasons that I, uh, I sort of came to the project as a history of science project that linked both the Atlantic and the, uh, and the Indian Ocean worlds.
Getting to the book then, your title is Assembling the Tropics. Why this word, assembling, instead of the other words that some scholars use to describe the moment when a, a new idea emerges, such as constructing or inventing the tropics? What's at stake in this word, assembling, for you in this book? Yeah, I, I felt like, um, well, I have to say, assembling, that became part of the sort of my conception of the book. Um, it was it wasn't it was sort of a, as a title it was something of a concession, um, but uh, but assembling assembling to my mind referenced the way in which um, both human and non-human actors um, come together and um, shape one another, and uh, and one of the things as the project went on that I was trying to do was ultimately to find a way um, a way to suggest. Uh, or to find examples of the ways in which um, these uh, diseases uh, and, you know, commodities, global commodities like pepper were uh, turned out to be, you know, somewhat refractory to um, Portuguese colonial efforts to understand and, uh, and manipulate and, um, uh, and, and profit from them. Uh, and I felt like uh, I felt like assembling um, is linked to um Sort of a theoretical apparatus that allowed me to highlight that rather than something like, you know, in the late 90s, this could easily have been, you know, a kind of inventing the tropics. Um, so much emphasis um, was placed on uh, on discourse. And I was trying to, you know, I was, there, was, there was something about a sort of inventedness that I was that I was after, but it was more to it. And I felt like assembling accommodated that. Uh, you know, to be to go to the beginning of the book, and this is uh, early Portuguese exploration of uh, sub-Saharan Africa. You write that at this point in time, there was no coherent sense of the tropics and that the intellectual heritage that the Portuguese were working with at this time uh, was conflictual and conflicted with the experience of, of early explorers, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, the Portuguese, they're, you know, they're working with a... Um, they're working within a classical intellectual framework that conceives of um, the intertropical world generally as uh, a region that is sort of everywhere hot and dry and possibly absolutely impossible to um, to traverse. And that's that's one way of thinking about the region that they were entering as they sail along the um, the African coast over the course of the uh, of the early and middle decades of the 15th century. Um, but they had also inherited, uh, you know, a range of travel literature that suggested that immediately below the sub-Saharan trade networks, which they were really interested in tapping into, of course, um, there was a world that was uh, actually verdant and fecund and, and heavily populated. And so as, as um, Portuguese and other seafarers begin from rest, Western Christendom, excuse me, begin to sail along the, the West African coast, uh, they are, you know, they have these two um, sort of dissonance, uh, perhaps mutually exclusive uh, portraits of the sub-Saharan world that they're wrestling with. Um, and when they arrive south of the Sahara, uh, what they find is uh, a, a world that is indeed um, bustling and densely populated and verdant. Um, and, and that verdure, uh, given the the Hippocratic Galenic medical framework that they had inherited would 
should have was suggestive of uh, of of a certain level of health it made the place seem like it was actually really salubrious. And what they found was that although it was densely populated uh, and, and, and verdant, that it was also deadly, uh, absolutely um, pervaded with illness, debilitating illness, and especially um, debilitating febrile illnesses. Of course, illness where that was characterized by disease, or excuse me, illness that was characterized by fever. Uh, and so, and and that episode, um, that episode where um, by about the turn of the 16th century, um, the sub-Saharan world came to be characterized in the Portuguese. Uh, so something of a, of a sort of overly essentialist, but a Portuguese imagination, a Portuguese imagination characterized by, on the one hand, prodigious nature and on the other hand, by um, debilitating febrile illness. Um, that that struck me as um, as ultimately really interesting. And that was because uh, it occurred to me that this is uh, over the course of the late 15th century, the Portuguese had bumped into a region that they found characterized by two conditions that we, uh, even today, consider to be characteristic of the entire intertropical world. And in fact, um, at the beginning of the book, um, what I what I argue is that there are two that the tro- the modern tropics are characterized fundamentally by two conditions: one, um, prodigious nature, and two, debilitating febrile illness. Um, now, of course, in the 15th century, uh, this this it was not at all clear uh, just how widespread that phenomenon was, uh, and which which is to say that the, the tropics, as as we now understand them to be, even though we understand as well that there are all kinds of exceptions, um, but in this sort of general formulation as we now understand them, they, they were they were still it was still something that had yet to come into being, and so. And so that, for me, was a sort of sort of jumping off point. How does not just West Africa, but the entire intertropical world uh, come to be seen as characterized by those two overlapping um, uh, qualities? And so then the project became essentially figuring out how how that happened, which turns out to have happened, uh, I argue, uh, over the course of the late the late 17th century. Hence the framing of the book, the 1450 to, to 1700. Yeah. Why do you think it took, and I think this is one of the surprising, very interesting things that comes out in the book, uh, is that it did take so long to develop this uh, sense of a global tropical environment that is in some ways uh, uh, cohesive and uh, as interchangeable properties. Uh, why did it take so long? Yeah, well, so that's a that's a good question. I mean, the um, the sort of the why did it take so long um, kind of begs the question, right? Why why did it happen at all? And uh, and that that was ultimately my question. How how in you know when so many when so many possibilities were were just that were possible? Uh, why did it come to be that that uh, this region between the Tropic of Capricorn? And the Tropic of Cancer. Why did it come to be that, that those two places were seen as, um, or that those two that those two latitudes delineated contained within them a place that seemed to be globally coherent? Um, and uh, because, of course, uh, over the course of the over the course of the period of the book charts, there are, and I, I explore this to some to some at some length in the book, there are many different ways of conceiving of the intertropical world. Um, 
you know, initially the the sub-Saharan world is seen as um, as you know peculiarly verdant, but also um, uh, but also uh, peculiarly deadly. Uh, but that was not the case with either uh, Portuguese colonies uh, in uh, in uh, southwestern India or any any place else in uh, in southern Asia. Uh, nor was that the case uh, in Brazil. Um, so, uh, so the the process of uh, of essentially imagining a coherent global, a globally coherent intertropical world, um, really was just that. It was a process that required uh, a consider a considerable amount of labor. Um, ultimately, what I argue um, toward uh, toward the end of the book is that these two qualities come to come to be conceived of as um, sort of uh, as characterizing the vast intertropical world in its entirety because there is a handful of uh, ambitious, well-connected, um, politically engaged physicians who are looking to reform Portuguese metropolitan medicine, and they begin to promote this view um, as a way to, uh, uh, just as a, as a sort of foundation for a series of metropolitan reform efforts. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Uh, well, yeah, so that to back up back to the to the 15th century, we go from from Africa to to Goa, and here we begin with the character Garcia de Orta. Can you explain a little bit who that is? Yeah, uh, I sure can. And in fact, um, before I before I talk about Garcia de Orta, it may be it may be helpful for our our listeners if I just um, if I just say really quickly try to make sense really quickly of the book kind of at a sort of a 30,000 foot view i mean the two big arguments of the book are that um right on the one hand the this this notion of uh of a an intertropical world that is globally coherent in those two terms prodigious nature and debilitating febrile illness uh is something that uh that becomes a a possibility uh in the late 15th century but really crystallizes um as a geographical concept uh toward the end of the 17th century so that's one argument and that argument uh is is really at the heart of both sort of the opening chapter um as well as the the closing chapter but over the course of the of the middle of the book uh sort of most of the book uh, I'm really preoccupied with uh, a second set of questions, and those questions all have to do with um, the way in which uh, early modern colonial settings give rise to their own kinds of, um, of epistemic tinkering, of evidence making, and of, uh, and of, of truth claim making. And, uh, and while, so, the argument about the tropics is really about uh, a sort of a history of a, of a, a global geographical category. But, um, but, but the, this other argument, what, what's really at stake here is a story about rather than a single scientific revolution centered in Europe, mostly north of the Pyrenees uh, and mostly sort of spread somehow between London and Paris, that in fact we can conceive of the early modern world as, as absolutely brimming um, with uh, with sort of in, innovative intellectual programs uh, of all kind, irrespective uh, of those um, from which we might trace uh, a kind of modern modern genealogy up to up to the present, but that these unanticipated early modern encounters um, really really set up um, all kinds of uh, all kinds of novel intellectual and uh, sort of knowledge making knowledge making programs. And yeah. Garcia de Orta, just to get to come to your question. Garcia de Orta is uh, sort of is the iconic 
16th century Portuguese um, naturalist. And uh, and if anyone uh, knows anything about uh, what we often think of as the Iberian colonial world, if anyone anyone thinking about science in the Iberian colonial world probably knows uh, probably knows uh, from the Portuguese world Garcia de Orta alone. So this is someone who um, was uh, born on the sort of the, the fringe of the border region between Spain and Portugal uh, at the beginning of the 1490s. I don't recall the exact year. Um, there was some time, uh, consider some debate over, uh, over, um, what exactly that date was, but at any rate, you don't detain us. Um, this was born sort of at the end of the 15th century, um, goes to school, uh, in, uh, prestigious universities in Spain, Salamanca and Alcalá de Henares, uh, and then, uh, and then comes to work at the Portuguese court, um, over the course of the late 15, uh, uh late 1520s, and then gets an appointment at, uh, at Portugal's, uh, University, what will become the University of Coimbra. And just as he's getting that appointment, the Portuguese Inquisition is getting up and running. And so, um, and this is of importance to Garcia de Orta because he comes, um, I think the, the preponderance of historical evidence and certainly the dominant historical interpretation to date has been that he comes from a new Christian family that is suspected of, you know, secretly, um, practicing, um, Judaism. And, uh, Orta, aware that he may be under suspicion, uh, needs to leave Portugal, and there seems uh, to him no better uh, no better place to go. It seems uh, than than Portuguese Asia, and so Garcia de Orta in 1534 arrives uh, uh, arrives uh, in India and uh, follows uh, a man who will become the a governor, an influential governor of, uh, of Portuguese Asia, Marching Afonso de Souza, um, for the better part of four years. Garcia de Orta then um, then settles down, uh, has settled down in in Goa, the heart of um, Portugal's empire in Asia, the administrative and, and commercial heart of of the Portuguese empire in Asia, uh, by 1540, uh, and then between 1540 and 1563, Garcia de Orta uh, authors the uh, the Colloquios dos Simples e Drogas e Coisas Medicinais da India, the Colloquies on the Simples and Drugs uh, of India. Uh, and, uh, and, and in 1563, this book is published in Goa, which is interesting in and of itself because there are no presses in the Portuguese colonial world, much uh, unlike the Spanish colonial world. There were, there were never presses or universities in Brazil or elsewhere. And, uh, but this book is, uh, I believe it was the second book published on Goa's press and, uh, and rapidly made its way back to Europe. Um, where the Flemish naturalist Carolus Clusius gets a copy of it, translates it into Latin, so the story goes, uh, in time, uh, for, uh, uh, for its, um, uh, sale on the Frankfurt, Frankfurt Book Fair, uh, 1567. And, uh, through Clusius's translation, Garcia Dorte becomes, um, sort of famous in, 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 in circles of European naturalists as someone who has authored, uh, an, a sort of, uh, on the spot account of, uh, of, of this, um, exotic Asian nature. Uh, and so Garcia de Orta becomes, uh, sort of earns this reputation as the, sort of the foundation, the uh, pathfinder of Portuguese colonial science. And, uh, and I was really interested in that story. And that's actually, um, that's actually the very first story that I began to approach as I, uh, as I approached the, the dissertation and then, and then the book, what became the book. Yeah, and so in Garcia Orta's experience in, in India and his writing and the, his uh, peers and predecessors, uh, you write that you want to approach it um, 
you know, to encounter Goa as he did, um, instead of, um, applying modern terminology to him. Uh, why is that important and what comes out of that? Yeah. So, um, that's important because, and this is, this is one of the things that I, I, um, sort of really learned to take seriously in my, as I was sort of making this transition between a sort of, um, sort of someone deeply schooled in Latin American history towards someone who was um, trying to grapple with questions of, uh, in the history of science. Um, but this, this notion of actor's category seemed to me really useful. Um, and for Orta, this meant um, understanding Goa the way that he did, understanding his relationships in Goa the way that he did, um, understanding his questions and his priorities as he saw them, or at least as they as they are, are represented in the colloquios, and not as not seeing his his priorities, um, his um, his knowledge making techniques as as extensions from uh, from metropolitan Europe of one kind or another. That which to say that Orta wasn't necessarily a sort of uh, a Renaissance naturalist um, or a sort of um, a sort of colonialist of all that that I write. He's this is someone who comes to Asia and is trying to make sense of uh, of the natural world of that world um, in ways that are of use to to him and to his his colleagues, his uh, his collaborators uh, in Goa and beyond. I mean, he generally does have trans transnational networks that he's um, that he's absolutely dependent upon. And in fact, the cultures would have would have been impossible without them. Um, but, but that's why it, it was important because we tend to see Garcia de Horta, um, as, uh, as, as really, um, a sort of, uh, one of, of a number, in one of a number of ways. He's a Renaissance naturalist. Um, he's, a sort of a, a forerunner of, um, uh, of Portuguese, uh, of, of the kind of knowledge that will in, inevitably lead to, um, to, to Portuguese colonial supremacy. Um, or more recently, he's been seen as a kind of go-between who is translating, um, uh, basically translating Asian knowledge for a European readership. And basically what I argue is, uh, is that you know, each of those are, uh, are problematic and, and somewhat miss the point, um, which for Orta is to find a way to, on the one hand, um, maintain, uh, maintain health and profitable trade in Goa. Um, and this is something that is of interest to him. And to other Portuguese traders in Goa, but it's something that's also of interest um, to the community of traders, Portuguese or not, who all converge in uh, in Goa. So, how did Diorta then? How did Orta create knowledge, and what what was his process, or what was he doing there? Yeah. So it, I I this is something that is. Um, I devote uh, a great deal of time to uh, in the book, and it is um, it, it's, it's a fairly detailed um, a detailed explanation. Um, but I will say that you know Orta, uh, Orta's conclusions. Well, one of what he what he was after uh, in in the colloquios was among other things uh, a more or less reliable description of of tradable goods in. Uh, in Goa, uh, not novelties, not wonders, um, not things that might fascinate patrons, um, you know, in Lisbon uh, or Sevilla, much less London or Paris. Um, but he was after a clear description of, of tradable goods as they appeared on the markets in Goa. 
and that meant, for instance, how to tell the difference between um, between um, true and artificial cinnamon. Uh, that meant um, answering questions, uh, for example, about uh, the differences between black and white pepper, um, because of course they seem like quotidian questions, but we have to remember that uh, that the, the fortunes of Portugal's empire rose and fell, um, uh, you know, in tandem with their ability to, to profitably trade on these. So, um, so it was important to Orta locally, and he well knew that it was important um, to uh, to his to his patrons, um, who were some, who were some some sometimes governors of Goa, but also um, trying to make a fortune there and uh, and when they returned home. So, so his con- so his conclusions, his efforts are useful um, to, to different constituencies. But in order to do this in Goa, he has to rely on um, the uh, accounts from uh, from uh, from um, correspondence spread from from the Middle East to Malacca um, about um, the the physical and also curative properties of particular plants. Um, he relies on ancient accounts uh, of, uh, of, uh, of 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 Asian trade commodities, Asian trade goods. Uh, he relies on uh, on as well the accounts of um, of folks, including um, including. Uh, Hindu uh, physicians, Vaidyas, as well as um, his own household slaves as they make their way into and out of the markets in Goa. Um, and he relies on, uh, on, on his own reading of classical texts. He relies on his, you know, his own senses, uh, his tongue and his nose as well. Um, and it is, uh, you know, and I, I talk about the ways in which this uh, this sort of assemblage uh, of evidence of different kinds of evidence, this eclectic assemblage of different kinds of evidence, is all brought to bear on uh, on particular kinds of uh, of, of goods. Um, but but Orta's epistemology is not. I guess the takeaway is that his epistemology is not one that is consistent throughout the book. Um, it really depends on what kinds of information he's able to get about different commodities. Um, and what he thinks it is uh, defensible and worthwhile to say about them. Uh, and so uh, and that explains, I argue, at least that explains um, the really uneven character, uneven quality of the individual chapters of the uh, of the colloquies, which there are 59 chapters in all. And, um, and some of them are devoted to a single commodity. Some of them are devoted to a collection of commodities. Um, but the ways in which he goes about trying to identify them and, and explain how they can be profitably traded in Asia really varies by commodity. Yeah. And, and so this Garcia Orta's intellectual project, uh, you know, kind of helps seal this reputation of South Asia as a, as a site where the, uh, the most powerful and the, and the, the best medicines can possibly come from. And his intellectual project is, is extremely ambitious and, uh, exciting. But as the Portuguese empire expands further, you know, it's, it's surprising that there's no Garcia de Horta of Brazil. Uh, why did, why did that go a different way? And, and what, what happens there instead? Yeah, that's right. And this is, this is one of the things that, um, that most, uh, struck me as I, as I began to, um, realize this ambition of trying to tell a story that was, uh, both sort of, um, grounded in particular colonial settings, but that also spanned the, the full breadth of Portugal's empire, uh, not the full breadth, but that, uh, that at least treated in depth uh, a number of important locations, uh, within that empire. 
Um, and, you know, when I turned my attention to Brazil, after having spent so much time trying to make sense of the, of the case of Portuguese Asia, what I was immediately struck by uh, was that unlike uh, Portuguese Asia, where you had not just Garcia de Horta, and one of the things that I, that I try to, um, that I, that I argue in the book is that Garcia de Horta, although he's the best known naturalist of Portuguese Asia, was, uh, was definitely, uh, not the only, uh, naturalist grappling with the kind, with the questions that, that Orto was grappling with. And then he builds, uh, on the work of a number of people, um, including, um, two Portuguese physicians who've also come out to the colonies. Um, Tomei Pires and Simão Alvarez, um, who are both apothecaries, uh, and who are, um, uh, and who are sort of variously known to specialists of early modern Asia, um, or, uh, or, or early modern Portuguese science, depending on, on what, what the sort of the disciplinary, uh, or the subdisciplinary home is. Um, Portuguese Asia, though, was, was really awash even in Portuguese naturalists who were on the scene trying to make sense of Portuguese Asia, sort things out and variously corresponding with people back in Portugal as they did so. And what I was surprised to find as I turned to Brazil was that there was virtually no one in Brazil uh, that was doing this until the late, uh, the late 16th century. And of course, the Portuguese, uh, the Portuguese arrived uh, to the Brazilian coast, uh, you know, not later than 1500, are slow to really um, to really take it seriously as a colonial destination, and this is something I also talk about in the book. Um, but you know, it really takes it really takes uh, until until the closing decades of the 16th century for for, for um, Portuguese colonists in Brazil to begin to take seriously um, the value of colonial Brazilian nature. And so one of the questions that I then ask is, you know, so there, so there are no apoth- apothecaries, um, you know, heading to Brazil. There are no physicians going there trying to make their name, uh, as a sort of, as a sort of decoder of, of Brazilian flora and fauna, either for colonial communities, um, or for, um, metropolitan contemporaries. Um, and what I argue, uh, I, 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 I certainly a little contentiously, um, is that the, the the Society of Jesus is um, is sort of at the center of uh, of that uh, of that uh, of the answer to that question? Um, in fact, the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits, um, I argue, are really at the center of two um, patterns that characterize um, natural inquiry in general for most of uh, most of um, the 16th century. Um, they didn't, they didn't, uh, I should say they didn't start uh, either of the patterns that I'll discuss. Um, the Jesuits didn't arrive until 1549, so a half century after the Portuguese had, um, had begun to engage in trade there, but they did help propel two patterns. Um, the first of those patterns is sort of a, a kind of, uh, willed ignorance of Brazilian flora and fauna. Uh, and the second pattern is a, is the depiction of colonial Brazil as a place that is, um, that is just healthy. It's verdant, but also profoundly healthy, uh, which contrasts with the Portuguese experience um, in in West Africa. And uh, and and I uh, and this, you know, is is um, in and of itself a significant uh, well achievement for the Jesuits, because as they know and as everyone in 16th century Brazil knows and as many, uh, uh, many observers in uh, Western Christendom and metropolitan Europe uh, in the 16th century know as well. Um, native peoples up and down the Brazilian coast 
are uh, absolutely plagued by debilitating illness, fever, and pox uh, of many kinds, at least as they are interpreted in, in contemporary sources. Um, but the Jesuits and Portuguese colonists themselves uh, are uh, absolutely, um, their communities are absolutely riddled um, with the same kinds of, uh, of afflictions. And so the, the sort of lasting depiction that comes out of the sort of uh, 16th century Portuguese encounters in Brazil of Brazil as a as a healthy place is itself something that is in need of uh, in need of explanation. So I argue that the Jesuits um, promote um, or, or help perpetuate these two patterns um, on the one hand, because um, and there's there's a lot about this in the book. But on the one hand, because Asian nature, uh, they know, is of greater interest to, or they they believe Asian nature is of greater interest to their patrons at um, courts from the papal court, uh, you know, in Rome to um, to to the, uh, the 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 Portuguese imperial court in Lisbon, um, and uh, so that's and and uh, um, sorry, I'm blanking on one of the, the sort of the Jesuit founders' names here, but Ignatius Loyola. Sorry about that. Um, Ignatius Loyola insists, in fact, as Jesuits begin to make their way out into the overseas world, um, that is the Portuguese imperial world, as Jesuits begin to make their way out overseas, uh, he insists that they pay particular attention to the flora and fauna of Asia precisely because he believes um, that, it is, uh, that it is Asian nature that can be uh, strategically gifted um, to, um, to, to Jesuit patrons uh, Throughout metropolitan Europe, um, and the Jesuits are, you know, in the middle of the 16th century, they're new, they're underfunded, they themselves are strapped for resources and personnel, and so patronage is uh, is one of the principal ways that they can that, that they can um, that they can help um, sort of fill in these gaps. Um, and uh, and so the Jesuits uh, privilege Asian nature in their reportage. Uh, and so after some early uh, and very, very um, positive assessments of Brazilian nature, Jesuit letters um, either ignore Brazilian nature um, by the mid 1550s. So just a few years after they're there, they begin to ignore Brazilian nature um, altogether or their accounts uh, are actually uh, they actually um, portray Brazilian nature in much, much more ambiguous terms. Um, and so uh, and so. Uh, so they help perpetuate this ambiguous vision of the dubious vision of, of Brazilian nature uh, among metropolitan observers, uh, I argue. And then and then, you know, when it comes to disease, uh, what I argue is that, you know, the Jesuits are um, they're at pains, especially in Brazil, to get um, to get recruits out on the ground and personnel uh the problem of personnel is one that, that plagues the Society of Jesus, but it, it turns out to be a particular problem in uh, in Brazil and uh, is at the heart of a, of a very contentious debate, dispute, really, between um, two of the Jesuits' earliest leaders uh, in Brazil, uh, how to how to recruit sufficient numbers of people for the Jesuit for the for the Brazilian apostolate. And, uh, and so in order to, in order to help ensure that they can convince enough members of the society not only to come out to Brazil, but to stay in Brazil, they 
portray Brazilian nature as, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, the Brazilian disease environment as one that is actually benign and that Brazil is, is, is actually quite salubrious. Um, and, and they know that this is, that this is a tall order because one of the things that I found, um, the Jesuits wrestled with, um, constantly was not only a shortage of personnel convincing people to come out, um, but the Jesuits often came to Brazil, grappled with illnesses and then left. And in some cases, uh, either abandoned the order altogether or got permission to go to Portuguese Asia, um, where it seems to them, at least in their, in their letters, um, that, that they would, uh, find greater fortunes or at least find, um, find healthier living conditions. Uh, and so, so the Jesuits had an interest in, in perpetuating certain kinds of images of, of, uh, of colonial Brazil, that it was healthy, um, but that its nature was of dubious value. Yeah. And so once, once the Jesuits and, and other Portuguese colonists are, begin grappling with disease in Brazil, do they, do they think that it's something particular to endemic to Brazil or are they seeing this, uh, the diseases that are spreading like, uh, like smallpox and, and malaria and, and yellow fever are, as these being, um, a more of a, glo- of a global origin? Well, that is actually a question that, um, that, uh, at least in my reading doesn't surface in, um, in Jesuit letters in, in quite that way. Most of the Jesuit explanations for illness, um, approach it, uh, in one of a number of ways, um, but all rooted in the perceived, um, sinfulness, uh, idolatry and heresy of, um, indigenous, um, spiritual practices. Uh, and so, and so the idea is that, uh, is that outwardly bodily decay um, is just symptomatic of a sort of internal spiritual turmoil or rot. Um, and that's the way that, um, that the sort of the first generation, excuse me, the first, the first generation of Jesuits, um, really conceives of, uh, of illness and, uh, the causes of illness in colonial Brazil. But the question about the, the causes of, um, of epidemic disease, um, in colonial Brazil is really a question that begins to surface toward the end of uh, the 16th century and over the course and gets written up in the early decades of the 17th century uh, in in the work of uh, of two very interesting and really virtually entirely ignored individuals. Um, one of them is the physician Aleixo de Abreu, uh, and the other is the um, the the planter turned naturalist, uh, Ambrosio Fernandes Brandão. And both Abreu and Brandão, uh, take up this question of the causes of disease in Brazil and, uh, and, and argue, they basically, they, they take up the same set of questions. They're also concerned about nature in, uh, in, in what, uh, in what can be called the Portuguese Atlantic. Um, not unproblematically, but what can be called the Portuguese Atlantic. Uh, and then uh, they, so they, they take up questions about nature and they take up questions about the cause of disease. And when it comes to disease, Abreu will argue that it is a combination of the heat and humidity and hard work um, that, uh, that, uh, that, that characterize the live, lives of the enslaved in West Africa, Brazil, and in Lisbon that leads to um, debilitating febrile illness and, uh, and pox uh, of, uh, of different kinds. And so for Abreu, actually, this is, uh, this is something that I found very interesting uh, when, when I first read his work. Abreu really conceives of the, um, the Portuguese Atlantic uh, 
in uh, and it's not I should say it's not clear that 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 people are conceiving of the Portuguese Atlantic in any kind of coherent way. But Abreu will argue that the Portuguese Atlantic is a uh, an epidemiologically coherent region. At least that's the image that emerges from his from his text. And he will then argue that, you know, his having been overseas in the Atlantic, he's the the first person, at least in the Portuguese world, to have spent time both as a physician, both in sub-Saharan Africa and in colonial Brazil, um, uh, and then and then return to Lisbon uh, to, to write a book on it. And so uh, Abreu uses his experience overseas as sort of um, what he, grounds for what he will argue is his his superior clinical acumen and um, and 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 expertise uh, to argue that that uh, for the causes of disease and how should, how they should be treated. And he goes on, you know, over the course of hundreds of pages to talk about um, to talk about to answer those questions. But on down, the planter, on the other hand, really sees um, disease in Brazil as being, uh, uh, interestingly, as being the product not of anything native to Brazil, uh, miasma, for example, um, uh, you know, rotten air. Um, but uh, he sees, but Andan will argue that disease in Brazil um, arrives there by way of, uh, of seeds. This is a... Uh, a contentious idea, but but not unprecedented, but that it arrives to Brazil as seeds, both carried by the wind. He argues that there are um, global wind currents that link sub-Saharan and South American worlds uh, and that they are carried as well in the, the bodies of the enslaved. Uh, and uh, and this what Brandão was picking up on here is uh, a notion that is kind of a it's an idea that is marginal within the Galenic corpus, but which was explored by Galen uh, and then by a, a series of late medieval um, uh, uh, commentators on the Galenic corpus, um, this, which is this notion of that there are seeds of disease and that disease is not created, not the consequence of, um, uh, you know, bad air, you know, um, uh, things like miasma, nor is it the consequence of the of a, a sort of a, an imbalance of humors, um, but that disease actually is is the consequence of the, uh, the bodily invasion of some outside thing. Um, that disease, in this case, has its is you know has its own ontological existence apart from the body and its constituent humors, um, and this is something that that Brandão um, uh, comes across in ways that I, I do not know. Uh, but argues in a book that he wrote in about 1618 in Brazil um, to explain the widespread uh, disease, um, both fever and pox, widespread diseases that he sees in colonial Brazil. And so as we're getting close to running out of time here, uh, how does Asia come back into this picture? I mean, so we, we have these these uh, these two uh, a physician planter developing this notion of a, a somewhat coherent Atlantic. Um, when does this become more of a coherent tropics? Yeah, so this happens. Um, this happens over the course of um, the middle and uh, well, it happens over the course of the middle of the seventeenth uh, century, um, and really crystallizes uh, in uh, in basically the the sixteen uh, the sixteen seventies and sixteen eighties, um, in in debates uh, among uh, metropolitan metropolitan physicians. 
and uh, who want to argue what they see is uh, just to back up for a second um, in metropolitan Portugal as the empire has expanded uh, metropolitan Portugal itself has become uh, is is absolutely flooded with um, people with curative expertise uh, from uh, sub-Saharan Africa, um, sometimes uh, by way of Brazil, um, as well as um, as people from um, from South Asia, who all have varying forms of curative expertise that is recognized as such by the inhabitants of Lisbon, and uh, and so there's a generation of university trained physicians, or at least some members uh, of a generation of university-trained physicians begin to look at, uh, at this as, a, as, a, as basically a kind of clinical chaos that they then need to sort of to take control over because they will argue um, that, um, that uh, the epidemiological situation of Lisbon is getting worse. It's getting worse because there are a, an ever larger number of cures who have, of healers who have no university training and so don't have the theoretical knowledge that they need in order to effectively treat disease in Lisbon. Uh, and what they will argue, uh, these physicians, um, they will argue that um, what is needed in order to in order to most effectively treat the uh, the kinds of disease that are afflicting Lisbon. And these diseases are um, fever on the one hand, febrile diseases of all kinds on the one hand uh, and uh, and varying kinds of pox on the other. Uh, and they will argue that in order to treat these fevers and these forms of pox, what is needed is both university training and experience overseas in the empire. Uh, and they uh, and they will argue the imperial piece um, because they will um, they will argue that uh, that it is uh, the empire um, that is especially afflicted uh, by both uh, by both pox and fever. Um, and the reason that they think this is that. Um, perceptions of the epidemiological environment in India and Brazil uh, have begun to change. India and Brazil, unlike uh, sub- unlike West Africa, uh, were seen as more or less healthy, and, and there were there were ways in which you know different groups had explained the outbreak of disease in these different locations, and I cover that in the book, and we've talked about that a little mm-hmm. bit with reference to um, to the Jesuits and Abreu and Brandão in Brazil. Um, but uh, but what's going on is in India, um, by the middle of the 17th century, uh, conditions in Goa have become so bad that there are actually proposals now to relocate uh, Goa um, uh, several uh, several miles down the coast um, to where it is actually currently located in Panjim, um, because uh, because Panjim is, is on a hill. Um, this is actually uh, really marks the, the landscape of Panjim if you go there today. Um, whereas, whereas the original site of Goa was in uh, the sort of lowland area, uh, uh, along, uh, along, uh, along a riverbank. And so, uh, and so these reports, the proposals to move, to relocate Goa because of its ill, because of endemic illness there had uh, become a topic of debate among, uh, among policymakers in Lisbon at the very same time. Um, that the the accounts of uh, of Abreu and Brantão and presumably others had begun to to who deba- were debating the causes of disease in Brazil disease in Brazil excuse me um, uh, accounts were arriving to Lisbon from both Brazil and from India of the sort of the the uh, uh, the 
the perilous disease environment in these places. And so these, these, by the, by the middle and late 17th century, these physicians in Lisbon had good cause, um, to be able to point to imperial locations around the globe, um, to say that the empire itself was, uh, was especially pernicious to human health. Um, uh, but that, but that, uh, but that they, with a combination of university training and experience in these places, uh, knew best how to treat disease in Lisbon and throughout its empire. Uh, and, and on that basis, they would claim that, um, university trained physicians, um, should be, um, should be the privileged, uh, healers of, uh, of Portugal and its empire. Um, if that, if that makes any yeah. sense and isn't too redundant. Uh, and so, and so part of that debate becomes a claim that there is a coherence to the region between, um, the northern and southern tropics. Uh, right. and this is, and so, and the language of intertropical coherence comes, becomes a part of the debate that these, that these physicians begin to, uh, or the, becomes part of the claims that these physicians begin to make in print and, uh, you know, presumably, uh, you know, in, behind closed doors with their powerful metropolitan patrons. And I should say these physicians are, as a group, they are uh, well-published, um, as I explained in the book, and they're well-connected. So they are the personal physicians to um, uh, the, those who formulate uh, and enforce, and as much as it is enforced, enforce uh, imperial policy. Um, so so they're, they're well-connected and they, they can influence imperial policy. And so they're, it's not for nothing that they're beginning to make, uh, to make these claims. Yeah. Do you think this is uh, the origins of the idea of the tropics as it's going to become used later in British and Dutch empires and French empires? Or is this a, a specifically Portuguese story? Yeah, I mean, I, that's a great question. Uh, and this is something that I really wrestled with. I, you know, I, I, I'm I'm hesitant to say that, you know, this is um, that what's going on here is um, sort of the you know, the creation of uh, the modern tropics. Um, but I do think it is the crystallization of the tropics in those two terms that we began with. In other words, the crystallization of a view of intertropical coherence that is defined by both prodigious nature and debilitating febrile illness. Um, beyond that, I'm, I'm really not sure. I think, I think it's kind of an open question. Um, and I should say I'm not sure... I'm not, I'm not sure it, you know, it, that it has to, that they have to be the modern tropics for the story to be, to be any more, any less important. Um, but I do think that we do have the crystallization of a coherent view of the tropics in, in those combined terms. Uh, and that at least does become the basis for the way that the tropics gets talked about and medicalized yeah. from the late 17th century onwards. Right. Right. So uh, we're running out of time now. Is there any aspect of the book we haven't touched upon yet that you want to make sure is on this recording? Uh, I mean, there's, um, you know, there's, of course, I would I'd say if, you know, if I spend a lot of time um, sort of digging into the, the cases uh, of, of many of the people whose, whose names we've talked about um, in an effort to unpack the stories of some of the best known figures of Portuguese, um, of Portugal's sort of early modern, uh, uh, empire, people like Garcia de Horta, uh, and, and members of the Society of Jesus. But I also spend a good deal of time digging into the stories of, of folks who are lesser known or, or, or largely unknown, um, even to specialists, uh, of, uh, 
of early modern science in the Portuguese world, people like um, Tomei Pires and Simão Alvarez, and those two have been covered by by Portuguese um, by Portuguese specialists, but sort of outside of that narrow community, really aren't well known. Uh, and uh, and people like the pilot Rodrigues, who comes to play an important role uh, in in providing a sort of a vision, a literal vision, drawings on paper of what the of what Portuguese Asia actually looks like. Um, but I would just say, you know, if, if readers are interested in uh, in these stories, I, I dig into them um, in, in quite a bit of detail within the book, both for those who are well known um, and and for those who are who really aren't very well known. So just direct readers, readers there. Yeah. Well, great. Thank you. So, Hugh, now that uh, this is in print, what are you turning to now for a new project? Well, I feel like the book, um, there are a lot of. Uh, I mean, so much is in the book, but I also I pulled ended up pulling a, a great deal of material out of the book. Um, and so I feel like the book uh, has, at least for me, opened up uh, a whole range of unanswered questions uh, about the so the the density and rapidity uh, or um, yeah, the density and rapidity of, um, of of global exchanges in the early modern world. Um, the, the nature of Iberian science, if there is such a thing as Iberian science. Um, and, uh, and so what I'm working on now, uh, are basically, um, a whole raft of, of essays to try to make sense of, uh, of, of some of these other questions that have come out of the book, um, in, in greater detail than I felt like I could, I could really treat them, uh, in the text itself. Um, and so I'd say there, there are those that are sort of essay projects. Uh, and then I have a sort of a longer term project, um, uh, about the ways in which, um, uh, particular particular plants and animals in colonial Brazil became um, intellectual problems for um, for thinkers not just in Portugal um, but elsewhere uh, in in metropolitan Europe over the course of the 17th and 18th centuries um, and that's probably the topic of the uh, of the of the second book project but you know it's very early in the process and and to be honest with you just about anything could happen so who knows. <laughs> Great. Well, it's been wonderful talking to you, Hugh. Thank you, Lance. I really appreciate you uh, having me on your program. It's been it's been it's been a good time. Thank you.